White Cobra presents Sherlock Holmes and the Resident Patient. Written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and adapted by Fraser Haynes. My name is Dr John Watson. You may know me as the chronicler of the adventures and extraordinary life of my friend Mr Sherlock Holmes. I have of late been glancing over this somewhat incoherent series of memoirs with which I have endeavoured to illustrate a few of the mental peculiarities of my truly individual associate, and I have been struck by the difficulty which I have experienced in picking out examples which shall in every way answer my purpose. For in those cases in which Holmes has performed some tour de force of analytical reasoning and has demonstrated the value of his particular methods of investigation, the facts themselves have often been so slight or so commonplace, that I could not feel justified in laying them before the public. On the other hand, it has frequently happened that he has been concerned in some research where the facts have been of the most remarkable and dramatic character, but where the share which he has himself taken in determining their causes has been less pronounced than I, as his biographer, could wish. It may be that in the business of which I am now about to write, the part which my friend played is not sufficiently accentuated, and yet the whole train of circumstances is so remarkable that I cannot bring myself to omit it entirely from this series. It had been a close, rainy day in October. Our blinds were half-drawn, and Holmes lay curled upon the sofa, reading and re-reading a letter which he had received by the morning post, while I perused my newspaper. Everybody was out of town, and I yearned for the glades of the New Forest or the shingle of Southsea. Finding that Holmes was too absorbed for conversation, I had tossed aside the barren paper, and leaning back in my chair, I fell into a brown study. Suddenly, you are right, Watson. My companion's voice broke in upon my thoughts. It does seem a very preposterous way of settling a dispute. Oh, this is preposterous. What is this, Holmes? This is beyond anything which I could have imagined. How can you possibly have known that to which I was thinking? You remember that some little time ago. When I read you the passage in one of Poe's sketches, in which a close reasoner follows the unspoken thought of his companion, you were inclined to treat the matter as a mere tour de force of the author. On my remarking that I was constantly in the habit of doing the same thing, you expressed incredulity. Oh, no. Oh, perhaps not with your tongue, my dear Watson, but certainly with your eyebrows. So when I saw you throw down your paper and enter upon a train of thought... I was very happy to have the opportunity of reading it off, and eventually of breaking into it, as a proof that I had been in rapport with you. But, Holmes, my dear fellow, in the example which you read to me, the reasoner drew his conclusions from the actions of the man whom he observed. But I have been seated quietly and unmoving in my chair. What clues can I possibly have given you? You do yourself an injustice. The features are given to man as the means by which he shall express his emotions, and yours are faithful servants. Do you mean to say that you read my train of thoughts from my features? Your features, and especially your eyes. Perhaps you cannot yourself recall how your reverie commenced. I have to confess I cannot, Holmes. Then I will tell you, my dear Watson. After throwing down your paper, which was the action which drew my attention to you, you sat for half a minute with a vacant expression. Then your eyes fixed themselves upon your newly framed picture of General Gordon and I saw by the alteration in your face that a train of thought had been started. Your eyes then turned across to the unframed portrait of Henry Ward Beecher, which stands upon the top of your books. You then glanced up at the wall, and of course your meaning was obvious. You were thinking of that if the portrait were framed, 
It would just cover that bare space and correspond with Gordon's picture over there. I say, Holmes, you have followed me wonderfully. I could hardly have gone astray. But now your thoughts went back to Beecher, and you looked hard across as if you were studying the character in his features. Your eyes ceased to pucker, but you continued to look across, and your face was thoughtful. You were recalling the incidents of Beecher's career. I was well aware that you could not do this without thinking of the mission which he undertook on behalf of the North at the time of the Civil War, for I remember you expressing your passionate indignation at the way in which he was received by the more turbulent of our people. You felt so strongly about it that I knew you could not think of Beecher without thinking of that also. Oh, but my dear Holmes... Ah, uh, when a moment later I saw your eyes wander away from the picture, I suspected that your mind had now turned to the Civil War. And when I observed that your lips set, your eyes sparkled and your hands clenched, I was positive that you were indeed thinking of the gallantry which was shown by both sides in that desperate struggle. But then again, your face grew sadder. You shook your head. You were dwelling upon the sadness and horror and useless waste of life. Your hand stole towards your own old wound, and a smile quivered on your lips, which showed me that the ridiculous side of this method of settling international questions had forced itself upon your mind. At this point I agreed with you that it was preposterous, and I was glad to find that all my deductions had been correct. Absolutely, Holmes. And now that you have explained it, I confess that I am as amazed as before. Oh, it was very superficial, my dear Watson, I assure you. I should not have intruded it upon your attention had you not shown some incredulity the other day. Let us take the air, Holmes. The evening has brought a breeze with it. What do you say to a ramble through London? I fear any perambulation will have to wait, my dear fellow. Hmm. A doctor's broom. General practitioner, I perceive. Not been long in practice, but has had a good deal to do. Come to consult us, I fancy. Come! This gentleman insisted on seeing you, Mr Holmes. Thank you, Mrs Hudson. Very good, sir. Good evening, Mr Holmes. My name is Dr Percy Trevelyan and I live at 403 Brook Street. Dr Trevelyan, are you not the author of a monograph upon obscure nervous lesions? Oh, oh I, I so seldom hear of the work that I thought it was quite dead. My publishers gave me a most discouraging account of its sale. You are yourself, I presume, a medical man? Indeed, sir. A retired army surgeon. Oh, my own hobby has always been nervous disease. I should wish to make it an absolute specialty, but, uh, of course, a man must take what he can get at first. <laughs> Indeed, Doctor. Now, how may I be of service? Ah, I quite appreciate how valuable your time is, Mr Holmes. The fact is that a very singular train of events has occurred recently at my home, and well, tonight they came to such a head that I felt it was quite impossible for me to wait another hour before asking for your advice and assistance. You are very welcome to both. Pray, let me have a detailed account of what the circumstances are which have disturbed you. One or two of them are so trivial that really I am almost ashamed to mention them. But the matter is so inexplicable, and the recent turn which it has taken is so elaborate that I shall lay it all before you and you shall judge what is essential and what is not. I am compelled, to begin with, to say something of my own college career. 
My student career was considered by my professors to be a very promising one. After I had graduated, I continued to devote myself to research, occupying a minor position in King's College Hospital. I should not go too far if I were to say that there was a general impression at that time that a distinguished career lay before me. But the one great stumbling block lay in my want of capital. A specialist who aims high is compelled to start in one of a dozen streets in the Cavendish Square Quarter, all of which entail enormous rents and furnishing expenses. To do this was quite beyond my power, and I could only hope that by economy I might in ten years' time save enough to enable me to put up my plate. Suddenly, however, an unexpected incident opened up quite a new prospect to me. This was a visit from a gentleman of the name of Blessington, who was a complete stranger to me. He came up to my room one morning and plunged into business in an instant. I was most surprised by his arrival and quite unprepared for his proposal. You are the same Percy Trevelyan who has had so distinguished a career and won a great prize lately. Indeed I am, sir. Answer me frankly, for you will find it your interest to do so. You seem to have all the cleverness which makes a successful man, but have you the tact? I trust that I have my share, sir. Any bad habits? Not drawn towards drink, eh? Really, sir? Oh, quite right. That's all right. But I was bound to ask. With all these qualities, why are you not in practice? Had I the means, sir? Come, come. It's the old story. More in your brains than in your pocket, eh? What would you say if I were to start you in Brook Street? My dear sir... Oh, it's for my sake, not for yours. I'll be perfectly frank with you. And if it suits you, it will suit me very well. I have a few thousands to invest, you see, and I think I'll sink them in you. But, but, but why? Well, it's just like any other speculation and safer than most. What would you say, sir? What am I to do, then? I'll tell you. I'll take the house, furnish it, pay the maids, and run the whole place. All you have to do is just to wear out your chair in the consulting room. Unless you have pocket money and everything, then you hand over to me three quarters of what you earn, and keep the other quarter for yourself. I trust that this will be a suitable arrangement to you, and that you will find our association profitable. This was the strange proposal, Mr. Holmes, with which the man Blessington approached me. I won't weary you with the account of how we bargained and negotiated. It ended in my moving into the house next Lady Day, and starting in practice on very much the same conditions as he had suggested. He came himself to live with me, in the character of a resident patient. His heart was weak, and he was a man of singular habits, shunning company and very seldom going out. Every evening, at the same hour, he walked into the consulting room, examined the books, put down five and threepence for every guinea that I had earned, and carried the rest off to the strong box in his own room. I may say with confidence that he never had occasion to regret his speculation. During the last few years, I have made him a rich man. It only remains for me now to tell you what has occurred to bring me here tonight. Some weeks ago, Mr. Blessington came down to me in a state of considerable agitation. He spoke of some burglary, which, he said, had been committed in the West End, declaring that a day should not pass before we should add stronger bolts to our windows and doors. 
from his manner, it struck me that he was in mortal dread of something, or somebody. But, as time passed, his fears appeared to die away, and he had renewed his former habits. When a fresh event reduced him to the pitiable state of prostration in which he now lies. Two days ago, I received this letter, which I now pass to you. Neither address nor date is attached to it. A Russian nobleman who is now resident in England would be glad to avail himself of the professional assistance of Dr Percy Trevelyan. He has been for some years a victim to cataleptic attacks, on which, as is well known, Dr Trevelyan is an authority. He proposes to call at about quarter past six tomorrow evening, if convenient. What say you, Watson? Intriguing in all aspects, Holmes. Intriguing indeed, my dear fellow. Oh, pray continue with your narrative, Dr Trevelyan. Ah, uh, at the appointed hour, the footman showed in the patient. He was elderly. By no means the conception one forms of a Russian nobleman. I was much more struck by the appearance of his companion. This was a tall young man with a dark, fierce face and the limbs and chest of a Hercules. He helped him to a chair with a tenderness, which one would hardly have expected from his appearance. He introduced the elderly man as his father, and I could see he was greatly concerned for the man's welfare. I invited him to stay, but he instantly demurred, saying if he were to see his father in one of these dreadful seizures, he was convinced that he should never survive it, given the condition of his own nerves. He therefore excused himself. You are correct, Mr Holmes. The young man withdrew, and the patient and I then plunged into a discussion of his case, of which I took exhaustive notes. Suddenly, as I sat writing, he ceased to give any answer at all to my inquiries, and on my turning towards him I was shocked to see that he was sitting bolt upright in his chair, staring at me with a perfectly blank and rigid face. He was again in the grip of his mysterious malady. I made notes of my patient's pulse and temperature, tested the rigidity of his muscles and examined his reflexes. I had obtained good results in these cases of catalepsy by the inhalation of nitrate of amyl, and the present seemed an admirable opportunity of testing its virtues. The bottle was downstairs in my laboratory, so I ran down to get it. There was some little delay in finding it. Five minutes, let us say. And then I returned. Imagine my amazement to find the room empty and the patient gone. The sun had gone also. The hall door had been closed, but not shut, and the affair remained a complete mystery. I never thought that I should see anything more of the Russian and his sons, so you can imagine my amazement when, at the very same hour this evening, they both came marching into my consulting room just as they had done before. Did they give reason for their sudden and unexplained departure? Indeed so, Mr Holmes. The nobleman explained that when he recovered from an attack, his mind was always very clouded as to all that had gone before. He woke up in what seemed to him a strange room and made his way out into the street in a sort of dazed fashion. And the son? He said that seeing his father pass the door of the waiting room, he naturally thought that the consultation had come to an end. There was no harm done, and so I invited my patient to continue our consultation, which had previously been brought to so abrupt an ending. For half an hour or so, I discussed that old gentleman's symptoms with him, 
and then, having prescribed for him, I saw him go off upon the arm of his son. Mr Blessington generally chose this hour of the day for his exercise. He came in shortly afterwards and passed upstairs. An instant later, I heard him running down, and he burst into my consulting room, crying that an intruder had been in his room, and entreated me to come and look. In what state was Mr Blessington? He seemed like a man who was mad with panic, and half out of his mind with fear. Did you accompany him to his room? With some trepidation I joined him, Mr Holmes. When I entered the room, he pointed to several footprints upon the light carpet. They were certainly very much larger than any which he could have made, and were evidently quite fresh. It rained hard this afternoon, as you know, and my patients were the only people who called. It must have been the case, then, that the man in the waiting room had, for some reason, while I was busy with the other, ascended to the room of my resident patient. Nothing had been touched or taken, but there were footprints to prove that the intrusion was an undoubted fact. And Mr Blessington? Mr Blessington seemed more excited over the matter than I should have thought possible. He actually sat crying in an armchair, and I could hardly get him to speak coherently. It was his suggestion that I should come round to you, and, of course, I at once saw the propriety of it, for certainly the incident is a very singular one, though he appears to completely overrate its importance. If you would only come back with me in my brougham, you would at least be able to soothe him, though I can hardly hope that you will be able to explain this remarkable occurrence. Sherlock Holmes had listened to this long narrative with an intentness which showed me that his interest was keenly aroused. His face was as impassive as ever, but his lids had drooped more heavily over his eyes, and his smoke had curled up more thickly from his pipe to emphasise each curious episode in the Doctor's tale. As our visitor concluded, Holmes sprang up without a word, handed me my hat, picked his own from the table, and followed Dr Trevelyan to the door. Within a quarter of an hour, we had been dropped at the door of the physician's residence in Brook Street, one of those sombre, flat-faced houses which one associates with a West End practice. A small footman admitted us, and we began at once to ascend the broad, well-carpeted stair. It is just up here, gentlemen. Dr Trevelyan! Stand where you are! I have a pistol, and I give you my word that I'll fire if you come any nearer. Mr Blessington, for the love of God! Oh, it is you, Doctor! But those other gentlemen, are they what they pretend to be? I can assure you, sir, we are at your disposal. I am Dr John Watson, and this is Mr Sherlock Holmes. Blessington, please! Yes, yes, it's all right, you can come up. I am sorry if my precautions have annoyed you. Good evening, Mr Holmes. I'm sure I'm very much obliged to you for coming round. No one ever needed your advice more than I do. I suppose the Dr Trevelyan has told you of this most unwarrantable intrusion into my rooms? Quite so, Mr Blessington. Dr Trevelyan has given me a full account of the two men who consulted him, and who you believe entered your room. Please be so good as to tell me who they are, and why do they wish to molest you? Well, well, of course it is hard to say that. You can hardly expect me to answer that, Mr Holmes. Do you mean to say that you don't know Mr Blessington? Come in here, if you please. Just have the kindness to step in here. You see that black box on my bed? I have never been a very rich man, Mr Holmes. Never made but one investment in my life, as Dr Trevelyan would tell you. 
but I don't believe in bankers. What little I have is in that box. So you can understand what it means to me when people force themselves into my rooms. I can only say, Mr Blessington, that I cannot possibly advise you if you try to deceive me. But I assure you that I have told you everything. I think not. Good night, Dr Trevelyan. But have you no advice for me? My sole advice to you, sir, is to speak the truth. Come, Watson. A minute later, we were in the street and walking for home. We had crossed Oxford Street and were halfway down Harley Street before I could get a word from my companion. I'm sorry to bring you out on such a fool's errand, Watson. It's an interesting case, too, at the bottom of it. I have to confess that I can make little of it, Holmes. Well, it is quite evident that there are two men, more perhaps, but at least two, who are determined for some reason to get at this fellow Blessington. I have no doubt in my mind that both on the first and on the second occasion, that young man penetrated to Blessington's room, while his confederate, by an ingenious device, kept the doctor from interfering. And the catalepsy? A fraudulent imitation, Watson, though I should hardly dare to hint as much to our specialist. It is a very easy complaint to imitate. I've done it myself. And then? By the purest chance, Blessington was out on each occasion. Their reason for choosing so unusual an hour for a consultation was obviously to ensure that there should be no other patient in the waiting room. It just happened, however, that this hour coincided with Blessington's constitutional, which seems to show that they were not very well acquainted with his daily routine. Of course, if they had been merely after plunder, they would at least have made some attempt to search for it. Besides, I can read in a man's eye when it is his own skin that he is frightened for. It is inconceivable that this fellow could have made two such vindictive enemies as these appear to be without knowing of it. I hold it therefore to be certain that he does know who these men are and that for reasons of his own he suppresses it. It is just possible that tomorrow might find him in a more communicative mood. Is there not one alternative? Grotesquely improbable, no doubt, but still just conceivable? Might the whole story of the cataleptic Russian and his son be a concoction of Dr Trevelyan's who has, for his own purposes, been in Blessington's rooms? Oh, my dear fellow, it was one of the first solutions which occurred to me, but I was soon able to corroborate the doctor's tale. This young man has left prints upon the stair carpet which made it quite superfluous for me to ask to see those which he made in the room. When I tell you that his shoes are square-toed instead of being pointed like Blessington's, and were quite an inch and a third longer than the doctor's, you will acknowledge that there can be no doubt as to his individuality. But we may sleep on it now, for I shall be surprised if we do not hear something further from Brook Street in the morning. Sherlock Holmes's prophecy was soon fulfilled, and in a dramatic fashion. At half past seven next morning, in the first glimmer of daylight, I found him standing by my bedside in his dressing gown. There's a brougham waiting for us, Watson. What, what time is... What's, what's the come, matter? Come, come, Watson. The Brook Street business. Oh, any fresh news? Tragic, but ambiguous. Look at this. A sheet from a notebook with For God's sake, come at once, PT, scrawled upon it in pencil. Our friend the doctor was hard put to it when he wrote this. Come along, my dear fellow, for it's an urgent call. In a quarter of an hour or so, we were back at the physician's house. He came running out to meet us with a face of horror. Oh, such a business, Mr Holmes, such a business. Of what do you speak, Doctor? Blessington is... 
Blessington has committed suicide. Holmes? Yes. He hanged himself during the night. Pray, come in, gentlemen. I really hardly know what I am doing. The, the police are already upstairs. It has shaken me most dreadfully. When did you find it out? He has a cup of tea taken into him early every morning. When the maid entered, about seven, there the unfortunate fellow was hanging in the middle of the room. He had tied his cord to the hook on which the heavy lamp used to hang, and he had jumped off from the top of the very box that he showed us yesterday. Thank you, Dr Trevelyan. With your permission, I should like to go upstairs and look into the matter. We both ascended, followed by the doctor. It was a dreadful sight which met us as we entered the bedroom. Blessington was a man of some flabbiness, and as he dangled from the hook, this was exaggerated and intensified until he was scarce human in his appearance. The neck was drawn out like a plucked chicken's, making the rest of him seem more obese and unnatural by the contrast. He was clad only in his long nightdress, and his swollen ankles and ungainly feet protruded starkly from beneath it. Beside him stood a smart-looking police inspector, who was taking notes in a pocket-book. Ah, Mr Holmes, I'm delighted to see you. Good morning, Lana. You won't think me an intruder, I'm sure. Have you heard of the events which led up to this affair? Yes, I heard something of them. Have you formed any opinion? As far as I can see, the man has been driven out of his senses by fright. The bed has been well slept in, you see. There's his impression, deep enough. It's about five in the morning, you know, that suicides are most common. That would be about his time for hanging himself. It seems to have been a very deliberate affair. I should say that he has been dead about all oh, three hours, judging by the rigidity of the muscles. Noticed anything peculiar about the room? Found a screwdriver and some screws on the washhand stand. Seems to have smoked heavily during the night, too. Here are four cigar ends I picked out of the fireplace. Hmm. Have you got his cigar holder? No, I have seen none. His cigar case, then? Yes, it was in his coat pocket. If I may. Ah. This is an Havana, and these others are cigars of the peculiar sort which are imported by the Dutch from their East Indian colonies. And they're usually wrapped in straw, you know, and are thinner for their length than any other brand. Two have been cut by a not very sharp knife, and two have had the ends bitten off by a set of excellent teeth. This is no suicide, Inspector. It is a very deeply planned and cold-blooded murder. Why, Mr Holmes, that's impossible. And why, Inspector? Why should anyone murder a man in so clumsy a fashion as by hanging him. That is what we have to find out. How could they get in? Through the front door. It was barred in the morning. Then it was barred after them. How do you know, Mr Holmes? I saw their traces. Excuse me a moment and I may be able to give you some further information about it. He went over to the door and turning the lock he examined it in his methodical way. Then he took out the key which was on the inside and inspected that also. The bed, the carpet, the chairs, the mantelpiece, the dead body and the rope were each in turn examined, until at last he professed himself satisfied, and with my aid and that of the inspector, cut down the wretched object and laid it reverently under a sheet. How about this rope? It is cut off the large coil he kept under the bed. He was morbidly nervous of fire and always kept this beside him, so that he might escape by the window in case the stairs were burning. Hmm, that must have saved them trouble. 
Yes, the actual facts are very plain, and I shall be surprised if by the afternoon I cannot give you the reasons for them as well. I will take this photograph of Blessington, which I see upon the mantelpiece, as it may help me in my inquiries. I must protest, Mr Holmes. You have told us nothing. Well, there can be no doubt as to the sequence of events, Dr Trevelyan. There were three of them in it. The young man, the old man, and a third, to whose identity I have no clue. The first two, I need hardly remark, are the same who masqueraded as the Russian Count and his son, so we can give a very full description of them. They were admitted by a confederate inside the house. If I might offer you a word of advice, Inspector, it would be to arrest the footman, who, as I understand, has only recently come into your service, Doctor. The young imp cannot be found. The maid and the cook have just been searching for him. It is of some consequence. He has played a not unimportant part in this drama. The three men, having ascended the stairs, which they did on tiptoe, the elder man first, the younger man second, and the man in the rear... Oh, my was... dear Holmes, how do you arrive at this conclusion? Oh, there could be no question as to the superimposing of the footmarks. I had the advantage of learning which was which last night. They ascended, then, to Mr Blessington's room, the door of which they found to be locked. With the help of a wire, however, they forced round the key. Even without the lens, you will perceive by the scratches round the lock where the pressure was applied. Upon my soul, Mr Holmes, the scratch marks are clearly visible. Now you have drawn them to my attention. On entering the room, their first proceeding must have been to gag Mr Blessington. He may have been asleep, or he may have been so paralysed with terror as to have been unable to cry out. These walls are thick and it is conceivable that his shriek, if he had time to utter one, was unheard. Oh, poor Blessington. He must have been out of his wits. Indeed, Doctor. Well, having secured him, it is evident to me that a consultation of some sort was held. Probably it was something in the nature of a judicial proceeding. It must have lasted for some time, for it was then that these cigars were smoked. The older man sat in that wicker chair, it was he who used the cigar holder. The younger man sat over yonder. He knocked his ash off against the chest of drawers. The third man paced up and down. Blessington, I think, sat upright in the bed, but of that I cannot be absolutely certain. This is abhorrent. They actually held a court in Blessington's room. What was their purpose, Holmes? Well, it ended by their taking Blessington and hanging him. The matter was so prearranged that it is my belief that they brought with them some sort of block or pulley which might serve as a gallows. That screwdriver and those screws were, as I can see, for fixing it up. Seeing the hook, however, they naturally saved themselves the trouble. Having finished their work, they made off, and the door was barred behind them by their confederate. We had all listened with the deepest interest to this sketch of the night's doings, which Holmes had deduced from signs so subtle and minute that, even when he had pointed them out to us, we could scarcely follow him in his reasoning. The inspector hurried away on the instant to make inquiries about the footman, while Holmes and I returned to Baker Street for breakfast. We had barely finished our coffee when Holmes rose excitedly. I must depart, Watson. There are a number of matters to attend to. I'll be back by three. Both the inspector and the doctor will meet me here at that hour and I hope by that time to have cleared up any little obscurity which the case may still present. Our visitors arrived at the appointed time, but it was a quarter to four before my friend put in an appearance. 
From his expression as he entered, however, I could see that all had gone well with him. Ah, Lana, a very good afternoon to you. Any news, Inspector? We have got the boy, sir. Excellent. And I have got the men. You have them, Holmes? Where are they? Well, at least I have got their identity. This so-called Blessington is, as I expected, well known at headquarters, and so are his assailants. Their names are Biddle, Haywood and Moffat. The Worthington Bank Gang, Mr Holmes. Precisely, Inspector. Then Blessington must have been Sutton. Exactly, my dear Lana. Why, that makes it as clear as crystal. Oh, I am totally bewildered, Mr Holmes. My dear Holmes, will you please enlighten myself and Dr Trevelyan? Come, come, my good doctors. You must surely remember the great Worthington Bank business. Five men were in it. These four, and a fifth called Cartwright. Tobin, the caretaker, was murdered, and the thieves got away with £7,000. This was in 1875. They were all five arrested, but the evidence against them was by no means conclusive. This Blessington, or Sutton, who was the worst of the gang, turned informer. On his evidence, Cartwright was hanged, and the other three got 15 years apiece. When they got out the other day, which was some years before their full term, they set themselves, as you perceive, to hunt down the traitor and to avenge the death of their comrade upon him. Twice they tried to get at him and failed. A third time, you see, it came off. Is there anything further which I can explain, Dr Trevelyan? I think you have made it all remarkably clear. No doubt the day on which he was perturbed was the day when he had seen of their release in the newspapers. Quite so. His talk about a burglary was the merest blind. But why could he not tell you this? Well, my dear sir, knowing the vindictive character of his old associates, he was trying to hide his own identity from everyone as long as he could. His secret was a shameful one, and he could not bring himself to divulge it. However, wretch as he was, he was still living under the shield of British law. And I have no doubt, Inspector, that you will see that though that shield may fail to guard, the sword of justice is still there to avenge. Such were the singular circumstances in connection with the resident patient and the Brook Street doctor. From that night, nothing has been seen of the three murderers by the police, and it is surmised at Scotland Yard that they were among the passengers of the ill-fated steamer Nora Creina, which was lost some years ago with all hands upon the Portuguese coast, some leagues to the north of Oporto. The proceedings against the footman broke down for want of evidence, and the Brook Street mystery, as it was called, has never until now been fully dealt with in any public print. My friend and colleague Sherlock Holmes had once again demonstrated his unerring powers of deduction and brought to an end a mystery that would otherwise have been left unsolved. You've been listening to Sherlock Holmes and the Resident Patient, written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and adapted by Fraser Haynes. Sherlock Holmes was played by Ian Spivey, Dr John Watson by Fraser Haynes, Dr Percy Trevelyan was by Ben Stanton, Blessington by John Myhill, Lana was played by Phil Perkis, and Mrs Hudson by Kate Billingham. The music was by Kevin MacLeod. It was edited by Martin Borleycox and directed by Fraser Haynes and Ian Spivey. A White Cobra production. <laughs>